as my brain transitions from counting to six and uh, actually giving a sermon. So um, here it is for the intro. In April 1865, think Civil War, Union General Ulysses S. Grant. He offers his first gesture to his defeated foe, Robert E. Lee, and his very first gesture after Lee has surrendered was allowing General Lee to choose the location and the time of his surrender. So just kind of just picture America at war in the Civil War, and it's not just important to win the war, you got to bring the nation back together to have a united states. And so Ulysses S. Grant knew that how he behaved in a small gesture could really set the trajectory for how well America would come back together in a United States. Historian Jay Winnick writes in his book, his book is called April 1865, The Month That Saved America. I'm listening to it on Audible, and I highly recommend it to you, but this is what he says. The ultimate fate of nations is often measured and not swayed by large events, but tiny ones. Small symbolic gestures that shape men's passions, assuage or incite their fears, quell or inflame lingering hostilities for years to come. Ulysses S. Grant actually did not wear his sword when he met with Robert E. Lee in Appomattox just to send that message that we are trying to come back as United States. Well, small decisions can have big consequences. You don't have to be a historian or a theorist to know that your small decisions can have big consequences. All I have to do is ask you, have you ever made a decision in which there were unintended consequences? Sometimes as adults we speak of, oh, I didn't think about how that was going to turn out. As if, like, that's an unusual thing. Who in here actually knows how all of their decisions are going to work out in real lifetime? Very few of us. Most of the time, what we do has some unintended consequences. I think one of these unintended consequences that Christians can be more honest about than perhaps the rest is that Christians, we know that we are sinners. And it seems like to me that sin often presents itself as a one-time concession a one-off, a little indulgence, but it's costly. J.C. Ryle said, picture sin like this. Picture sin as a needle, and it pokes through the fabric, just a tiny little hole. But with it, it draws the whole unintended consequences of the whole spool of yarn. Ooh, I just said this just one thing. Okay, well now we have an access into everything else. In our chapters in 1 Kings, yes, chapters in 1 Kings, we're going through three of them this morning, we're going to see that small decisions make a big difference in our destination. Small decisions make a big difference in our destination. Turn to your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 20. It should be on page 302 in your pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to open that up. Keep it open. We're going to work through 20, 21, and 22 all before nighttime. Okay, so um, you're welcome. You'll get your money's worth today. But we want to keep that main point in mind, that small decisions make a big difference in destination. As we work through these three chapters, it's going to chronicle two victories and two sins that all are because of small decisions. Chapter 20, you guys ready to go? 
Chapter 20, looking at verses 1 through 12, this is an overview sermon. We're not going to reference every single verse, not going to read every verse. We would really be here through the evening. But in verses 1 through 12, as you look at your pew Bible in the heading, you're going to see that there are some tiny little sparks that serve as a catalyst to incite two kings to go down the rutted road of war. These two kings are Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, and King Ahab, king of Israel. Well, this whole altercation gets started by this tiny little spark where Ben-Hadad has a threat to raid Israel, and it incites fear in Ahab to the point where King Ahab becomes like a lapdog. Look with me at verse 4. After hearing what Ben-Hadad had said, Ahab, the king of Israel, says this. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours in all that I have. Well, what was Ahab doing there? He was conceding to the threat, and it has an unintended consequence of not stopping the altercation, but only having King Ben-Hadad up the ante. Look with me at verses 5 through 6. The messengers came back. Thus said Ben-Hadad, I I sent to you saying, Deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and children. (laughs) But since I saw that you rolled over so well, nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they will search your house and the house of your servants and lay hands, here it is, on whatever pleases you. And take it away. Well, what was Ahab going to do? He goes and he consults his elders. And his elders say that they should refuse him. Right? That he should not honor that. Well, Ben-Hadad comes back and offers some trash talk and says, I'm going to wipe the floor with you. You, We're going to pulverize you so bad that our army is not even going to be able to collect a handful of dust. We're just going to wipe you out, Israelites. Well... Ahab, what is he going to do? He's going to respond back with his own trash talking in verse 11. The king of Israel answered, Tell him, let him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. Modern day translation, hey, King Ben-Hadad, I see you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? You know, don't brag about something until you can do it. What good does it do to brag before you put on your armor? No, the one who can brag is the one who's there at the end of battle, able to take it off and say, I cleaned up. I mopped house. I'm the victor. Well, here we are in verses 1 through 12. All this talking between kings kind of makes you think that you're just listening to the modern day news. And you notice, just like our modern day news, that we have not heard from God yet. Twelve verses, nothing from the Lord. So turn over in your Bibles to verse 13, and this is where we get the Lord speaking for the very first time. Speaking through a nameless prophet. Why? Because our confidence is not in the personality of the man, but in the power of God's word. You hear that, church? Verse 13, the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, right? He says, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hands this day. God promises a victory for King Ahab. That's what the prophet's telling. And in verses 16 through 21, just kind of float your eyes down there, God did win the battle. And through the most surprising military strategy. You know what it is? 
Let's put the most inexperienced people right in the heat of battle. And that's what Ahab does. And guess what? That's what God's plan was. And so God wins the victory. Well, King Ben-Hadad escapes, and so the hostilities have only been quelled for a moment. The battle was won, but the war is still going on. And so in verses 23 through 25, Ben-Hadad and his group, they kind of regather. They consider the weaknesses of Israel, and they plot a new attack. For those of you that are sports fans, you lose the first game. You come back, you regroup, you watch the film, you do a little better scouting report. You say, we're going to have a new plan to attack their quarterback this way. That's how we're going to win the game. Well, Ben-Hadad comes up with plan B, but plan B for King Ben-Hadad was also a big bust. He loses, and so he had no choice but to try plan C. Well, what's plan C? Look at verse 32. It's a diplomatic plan, which is beg for mercy and see if he can still live. Verse 32, so they tied sackcloth around their waist and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, your servant, oh, not, not your king and oh my Lord anymore. No, your servant, Ben-Hadad, says, please let me live. Please let me live. And notice the small gesture. So small that it's only one word. And this one word has unintended consequences. Unintended consequences of inciting the anger of the Lord. Notice what Ahab calls Ben-Hadad. What does he call them in verse 33? Now the men who were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. Faith family, that is covenantal language. He welcomes him into his chariot, an arch enemy of the Lord, and he calls him brother. Something small, insignificant, has some unintended consequences of inciting the anger of the Lord. And the Lord is going to speak to Ahab to confront him in the most unusual of ways. Look with me at verses 35 through 36. If you're a young person here, you're going to love this story. Well, here's the story in a parable. It's going to get to a point, but it's a parable at first. Verse 35, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. Hit me. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you. A lion met him and struck him down. Hmm. Is that your Sunday school story? So much for being nice. I mean, aren't you taught in Sunday school to turn the other cheek? Here's a guy that says, Hit me. And the guy says, I don't want to hit you. I mean, you didn't do anything to me. We're not going to fight. And yet, the prophet says, well, because you didn't hit me, a lion's going to come and strike you. Now, parents, talk with your kids this afternoon about the importance of hitting each other, right? I mean, that, 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 is that the moral of the story? No, you can slug each other a little bit later. Okay, but what's the point? What's the lesson that we're supposed to learn? Here it is. Listen up. We're not supposed to do what we think is right. We are supposed to do what God says. How do we get that? The prophet is not speaking on his own terms. Notice the prophet says, at the command of the Lord, strike me. So, Menards, even when you're being a nice brother or sister and you disobey, you are still disobeying, right? The word of the Lord. We don't want to get to a place where, oh, I can't do that. It sounds like I shouldn't do that. No, anything the Bible says 
That is what we are to follow. So this nice guy who disobeys the prophet is actually disobeying the word of the Lord. Now that's the parable. It's all to set up a trap on Ahab. So he eventually finds someone that will hit him. And now he comes to meet Ahab along the road. Scroll down to verse 38. With a black eye, verse 38, the prophet departed and he waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed by, he cried to the king and said, Hey, your servant went out into the midst of battle. And behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Hey, guard this man. Now, if, any, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And it just so happens that as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. We lost the prisoner. And the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Well, here's the trap. Back in the day, you were responsible as a guard to keep watch over your prisoner. And if your prisoner escaped, you had to pay for it with your own life. And Ahab agrees. And just like Nathan with the prophet or King David, this prophet says, Ahab because you had been Hadad. And God said that we were going to destroy him. This was a holy war because of their sin. And you did it and you let him go. Guess what, Ahab? Just as you agreed upon, if you lose your prisoner, you pay for it with your own life. You lost Ben Hadad. You're the man, you will pay for it with your own life. Look at verse 42. So thus the prophet said to Ahab, Thus says the Lord, because you have not let go of your, I'm sorry, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his and your people for his people. Well, what can we learn from chapter 20? Three things to learn from chapter 20. First, God's word is trustworthy. First, God's word is trustworthy. A prophet came to Ahab three separate times. And each time a prophet came to Ahab, the word of the prophet comes true. Look with me at verse 13. 13. I will give it into your hand this day. And guess what? God did it. They defeated the Syrian army that first day. Then look down at verse 28. And a man of God came near and says, Thus says the Lord. There, scroll down a little bit further. I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And once again, second battle, second victory. God delivers. But what about verse 42? You let this man go, therefore your life shall be for his. Well, all we have to do is flip over to 2 Kings and realize, I'm sorry, not 2 Kings, but 1 Kings 22, and realize that Ahab does die. What's the point? The Bible is full of promises that God has made and promises that we as a faith family should count on. But we should look at Ahab as a good case study into our lives. What characterizes your life? when you don't rely on the promises of God. Well, those that exalt themselves over God's word are always marked by confusion and constant fear. Do you notice that Ahab never asked, what does the Lord want? What, what does the Lord say? 
And because of that, he's constantly putting himself in danger and his life is a mess. But faith family, it was a voice that gave him the victory. It was a sufficient word from a prophet that allowed Ahab to walk securely. And it's the same thing for us today. The word of God is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path so that we won't stumble. God's word is trustworthy. He gives it to you a voice so that you know how to stand in this world, to walk securely and to navigate all of life's challenges. In fact, Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, it ends with there are two houses. One built on the sand, one built on the rock, the word of God. So that as the winds and the storms of life come and you are confused and you are afraid, well, what certainty do you have? If you build your life on the word of God, you will withstand that storm because you have built on a sure foundation. Is your life marked by confusion or confidence? It's directly related to how much time we put into God's word. So for certainty, for confidence, for courage, Humble yourself under God's word. Do not exalt yourself over God's word. Second, what does this mean for us? God's glory is paramount. God's glory is paramount. God's glory is the most important thing that he is concerned about. Look with me at verse 13, the last half. You've probably have been irritated already that we have not read from it yet. But verse 13b says this. I will give it into your hand this day. Why? And you shall know that I am the Lord. We intentionally skipped why God was going to give the victory. God wants Israel to know how powerful he is. And that's why he acts in both battles. Flip over to verse 28, the second battle. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys, Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hands, and you shall know that I am the Lord. What, what's God saying? God is saying they have some bad theology. What their scouting report said was, hey, this God of Israel, he's only the God of the hills. So if we change where the battle is, if we change the location to the plains, we're certainly going to win. And God says, oh, that, that, that's what you think of me? I am the God of heaven and earth. You can go wherever you want. I will win this war and my glory will be seen. So they had the battle in the plains. And guess what? God says, I'm going to prove to you, I will not be mocked. My glory will be seen. And so we read in verse 29 that they cut down 100,000 foot soldiers in a day. But look at verse 30. The rest fled into the city of Aphek and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. You think that I can't reach you? You think that I'm a God of the hills and I can't reach the valleys? You think that you can hide behind a wall? And hello, seven days later, Jericho. Here we have seven days later, this wall falls down and 27,000 men died. Faith family, theology matters. I encourage you to take Daryl Trinka's class. It's just good for all of you to know that theology isn't for eggheads. It's really practical, Right? Think about how do you limit God? Do you think God is a God of just the hills and not the plains? We wouldn't say it like that, would we? You know what we would say? You know, God's a God that really concerns about the big stuff, but God kind of leaves it up to me to do the small stuff. That's kind of how we treat him practically. Because do we really pray about the small things? Or are we just kind of on autopilot like, yeah, I can do this and I can do that and I can do this. 
But when it comes to the big decisions, which college to go to, who to marry, next pastor to hire, then we'll pray. Our culture would say the same thing. God doesn't care what I do in my bedroom. That's the small stuff. God wants me to be happy. That's the big stuff. That's not the God of the Bible. And maybe that last one there about the bedroom is easy for you as a Christian to see. But one commentator I consulted this week had a couple other questions that might get a little bit more direct to you, believer. Where are you tempted to limit God? Do you limit God believing that he is only a God of prosperity? God is the God of the good stuff in your life? No, he's not in charge of the bad stuff. Do you limit God saying that he's only a God of love? Oh, he loves to forgive. But he'll never punish sin. Therefore, I don't share the gospel. Can I believe all my relatives are just going to go to heaven? Because God's a God of love. And I don't want to be that guy at the dinner table around Thanksgiving that just messes up family gatherings. Or perhaps this one. Do you limit God by saying that your faith is a private matter? You know, God really cares about Sunday, but he really doesn't care about how I live the rest of my Monday through Saturday. I can live however I want. You see, it's not just those of the Old Testament that limit God, and it's not just unbelievers that limit God. At times, Christians do as well. And God wants his glory to be seen, and his glory is, is paramount. And really, his glory is most seen in his grace. So our third point, what does chapter 20 mean for us? God's grace is amazing. Number three, God's grace is amazing. The most amazing thing about chapter 20 is that we have a holy God who comes to the aid of a very unholy king. Faith family, Ahab is not worth defending. If I've lost you, just stick around for five more minutes and you will see how wicked King Ahab is. But here's the point that I think you should know. As bad as he is, I am no better. Yes, in a blue iron shirt, with pleated pants, serving the Lord as a pastor, I am no better. I am no better than the rich young ruler, the older brother, the Pharisees, or the soldiers that crucified Christ. And yet Christ came to my aid when I deserved hell. Faith family, as a Christian, don't ever get over your salvation. Remember your resume. Remember who you once were. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is actually our resume. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Aliens to God. Traitors taking up arms against the high king and committing treason against him. But God, who is rich in mercy, decided to save us in its amazing grace. Faith family, I think our resume looks a lot like more of King Ahab than it does of Christ. Are you amazed that God would save you? Have you gotten over your salvation? Next, chapter 21. So far, we've covered two victories and one sin. In chapter 21, we see Ahab's second sin. Now, to get chapter 21 in view, picture Ahab sitting outside of his second summer home sunning. Oh, wouldn't that be great this time of year? No, we want more snow. Come on, church. It was worth a shot. Okay. And there he is, sitting outside, sunning himself. He's at peace. And he begins to just imagine what would make his plot of land complete. A vegetable garden. Right? That's all I need, and I'll finally be happy. 
He wants a vegetable plot. And so he sees Naboth and where his vineyard is, and he wants to make a deal with Naboth. Look with me at verses 1 through 2 of chapter 21. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel. It just so happened that it was beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Now, his request at first doesn't really seem unreasonable, right? How about we trade? I'll pay you for it. Good money. Get you prime value. So, was Naboth being stubborn and unreasonable when he says in verse 3, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Wow. I mean, that's kind of strong. The Lord forbid. Is he being unreasonable? Not if you remember Numbers 36.7 or Leviticus 25.23. Numbers 36.7, God's word says, The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to their inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Leviticus 25.23, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. For the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. Naboth had a very legitimate reason not to sell. It was not his land to sell. It was the Lord's land. Not Naboth's, not Ahab's. Ahab's request is rightly declined because he wanted to do something with it that was not in accordance with a very small word from the Lord. Don't pass on your inheritance. And perhaps it's even illustrated in what Ahab wants to do with it. Did you notice that Ahab wants to make a vegetable plot of a vineyard? A vegetable plot of a vineyard. I'm not sure if all of us would choose that, but perhaps. Well, here's the thing. Did you know that the word vegetable garden is only used of Egypt in the Bible? And vineyard is only used of Israel. And so when Naboth rejects this opportunity, you know what he's really saying? Could be saying? Far be it from me that we would take the promised land Israel and make it as if it was like Egypt. I'm not going to take a vineyard and make it a vegetable garden. So we read that Ahab behaved like a grown man, heeded God's word, and looked for a new plot for his vegetable garden. No, no, we don't read that at all. That's not there. Let's look at verse 4. And Ahab went into his house vexed. And Solomon, because of Naboth the Jezreelite, had said to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid on his bed, he turned away his face, and he would eat no food. <sighs> Spoiled child, stomping his feet, sullen and vexed. It would be comical if he wasn't the king of Israel. Have you seen the political signs that were around the election time? They said this. Any functioning adult, 2020. Because we're kind of tired of, you know, like these theatrics, right? Stomping your feet for not getting your way in crime. Just, just, just any functioning adult will do. Reminded of that. Well, things turn sinister as Jezebel slides on the scene. Look at verses 5 through 7. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said, What is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, I hate whining, but I think we have to do it again. I think that's the tone. 
I'm not sure if Laura would think I hate whining, but at least up here, it, it, it's long and tedious to whine. Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Now, is that what Naboth said? He says, the Lord's vineyard. Well, Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? That's the key question, right? Hey, hey, Ahab, look in the mirror. Hey, smarten up. Are you the king? You know, you know what she's really trying to say there? Do you understand what authority means? You deserve unqualified obedience. That's how she thought of authority. That's how many people think of authority today. It's actually what makes many people scared of going to church, where there's organized religion and there's authority, because people think that it could be abused, because people like you know Jezebel think that if you have authority... You should be able to get what you want when you want it. And so she says to him, come on, man, man up. Take what you want. And if you can't do it, I'll do it for you. Nothing like a woman to do a man's job. Let's get it done. That's what she says. She doesn't understand how authority works. That Ahab is king, but he's king under the Lord. All authority is given by God, and even kings will give an account for their leadership. Well, Ahab's problem becomes Naboth's problem. Look at verse 8. So she wrote letters in, in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and she sent letters to the elders and the leaders who lived in Naboth's city. She photoshops his signature and forges his name. And what's her plan? Verses 9 through 10. Well, she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. It's as simple as it is brutal. She is a proactive murderer who thinks nothing of God's word. Faith family, did you notice how many of the Ten Commandments she breaks? Look them up this afternoon, but I would suggest to you that she breaks commands 1, 6, 8, 9, and 10. And for someone who does not care about God's word, she sure does seem to know it pretty well. How does she know God's word well enough? Well, she knows God's word well enough to know what warrants a death sentence. Based on Leviticus 24, 16, she knows that there's a death penalty if you blaspheme the Lord or the king. And she also knows God's word well enough to know, I need two or three witnesses. So she's willing to completely disregard commandments 1, 6, 8, 9, and 10. But she's willing to follow for her own advantage Leviticus 24, 16, which I'm sure you all have memorized. Well, her plan does work like clockwork. Notice that in verses 13, 14, 15a, 15b, and 16, it is mentioned that Naboth is dead. And in honor of this man, let's go ahead and read them. Verse 13, And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him, and the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they come out to the city, and they stoned him, number one, to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. Number two, he is dead. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned, and number three, was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is unalive. Number four, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was, number five, in case you missed it, was dead. So five times, 
four verses, Naboth is dead. Well, it gets worse. If you flip over to 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 26, Jezebel was thorough. She killed all of his sons because an inheritance could be passed down. So she wipes them all out. Now, we are told this to have maximum sympathy for Naboth and his family. But if you zoom out just for a second, aren't you left asking, why do we have a whole chapter about a king stealing land by murder? Isn't that what most kings in history have done? I'm king. I want your land. Let me think of a creative way to just get it. Because you said no, I'll just move you, like to Russia or to a cell or make you disappear. I mean... It seems kind of standard king protocol. And hasn't Ahab done worse? I mean, couldn't we have gotten a whole chapter on him rebuilding Jericho, perhaps sacrificing children to build it, him trying to kill Elijah, succeeding in killing many other prophets, and then compelling the whole nation to worship Baal? I mean, those kind of right up there. But we get a whole chapter about a vineyard? Why? Good question as a Bible student. Why? The vineyard shows how little Ahab thought of God in his word and how cheap he sells his soul for. If I've lost you, this is time to come right back to you just for one sentence. If you miss anything else, this is really important. It could be life-changing. Sin is selling out for cheap. Sin is selling out for cheap. All the relationship you have with God, all that he has done for you, and you're saying, I'm going to just kind of just devalue God, put that down, and I'm going to go after this fleeting pleasure for a moment. Sin is selling out for cheap. And at the end of verse 16, Ahab has a vineyard. And little does he know that he sold out for cheap because it's going to cost him his life. Christ asks you, if you were here as a non-Christian, what will you give in exchange for your soul? You have to exchange it for something, and everyone has a price. The good news of the gospel is that Christ thought your soul was worth his life. So what will you give? Something perishable, something fleeting, something momentary. But Christ, when he looks at your soul, he thinks it's worth his death and his resurrection. Faith family, choose a better king. Choose Jesus. We'll enter our friend Elijah. Look at verse 19 of chapter 21. And the Lord said to Elijah, thus says the Lord, I'm sorry, this is Elijah speaking to Ahab. You're going to say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also take possession? Elijah walks up to Ahab and says, have you killed Naboth? It's a rhetorical question. Of course he killed Naboth. But you're saying, whoa, 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 wait a second. He didn't throw the stones. He didn't falsely accuse him. He didn't pull any strings. Well, friends, this should remind you, especially dads, men, church leaders. Elijah knows that he's their murderer because he's responsible for his leadership. Right? Our sins as leaders influence others. What others do underneath our leadership comes back that we have to give an account. And it is actually Ahab's pride, his arrogance, his failure to lead his own family, his failure to lead his wife that leads to Naboth's death. So in verses 17 through 24... We notice that God's word breaks in to remind us once again of who's really in charge. Look at verse 19. We're going to read the whole thing now. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, 
And the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick up your blood. God's word is clear and it is fair. God cares about injustice and he will judge it. God is crystal clear about sin. It doesn't matter how little the sin, how marginal, helpless, inconsequential the victim might be, even a helpless baby in a womb. God won't let the guilty get away with it. God's justice is definite. God's just judgment will come. But as Christians, we have to acknowledge that it may be postponed, but it does not mean that it will not be canceled. Turn over to 1 Kings 22, verses 37 and 38, speaking of Ahab's death. 1 Kings 22, 37 through 38. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. It may look like the wicked are getting away with it, but God's judgment will never dissipate. But what can we learn from chapter 21? I have three lessons for you. I think some of you will begin to catch on pretty quickly. Number one, God's word is trustworthy. God's word is trustworthy. Look at verse 3, chapter 21, verse 3. What does Naboth say? The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. This is not a careless expression. Like, God forbid I ever go back to that place again. Ugh. That's not what he's saying. What Naboth is saying is that he would rather disobey the king than disobey God's word. And how unpopular that is. Did you notice that King Ahab treats King Ben-Hadad better than he does Naboth? He lets guilty Ben-Hadad go free, and innocent Naboth is murdered, all because Naboth has a conviction that God's word is trustworthy and that it must be obeyed. God's word is trustworthy, but faith family, make no mistakes, it is costly. You could do a little study this afternoon on seeing how John the Baptist is similar to Naboth. Because John the Baptist also was a prophet, who also stood up to a king who really was no king, and told him that what he was doing was wrong, and that the wife of that king set up a mock trial and had John's head handed to him. Oh, it's costly to follow God's word for Naboth, for John the Baptist, and for us today. So we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to obey God's word, even though it costs you friends, family, job? Our life. It's costly. Let me remind you, it is trustworthy. It's more reliable than granite. And so as a faith family, we don't fill our weeks with Bible study as if we don't have enough things to do. We fill our weeks with Bible study because it's trustworthy. And we believe the more that you dive into Scripture, the more courageous you will be. Joshua 1, 8 through 9. So faith family, are you taking God's word for granted? Christians who have Bibles but yet wake up in the morning choosing to roll over one more time, grab the Facebook feed, check an email, all for things that are little and inconsequential. But remember, your little decisions have a big impact on your destination. And we have so many good reasons to neglect this word, and yet God's word is trustworthy. So dive in, swim deep. God's word is trustworthy. Second, 
If God's word is trustworthy with point one, what do you think point number two is? God's glory is paramount. Look at 1 Kings 21, 20. 1 Kings 21, 20. Ahab sees Elijah and he says, have you found me, oh my enemy? And Elijah replies, oh, I found you because you've sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Did you notice that God sees sin? God sees the sins of the world. And the tragedy of Ahab's life is he thought so little of his sin because he thought so little of who God is. It's the same today. People have a very low view of sin. Christian, you need to remind yourself that your default view is to have a low view of sin. You were born with sin-stained glasses, and you swim in a sin-stained world. This is all that we know, all that colors our glasses. So we look around, we compare ourselves with each other, and we see sin, we just kind of go, oh, not that big of a deal. Of course, what would we expect? You're a sinner like me. And all it takes is an Isaiah 6 kind of moment where the curtain gets peeled back and we see God's holiness and we begin to say what? Woe is me. I am a man of, I'm undone and unclean lips. I need the altar to cleanse me. And so constantly at this church, yes, you're going to hear the negative news about sin because we sincerely believe it's in your best interest to see how serious sin is. Would you want to smoke by a keg of gunpowder? One little spark. My friends, your heart is a keg of gunpowder. And we think, oh, I can handle this temptation. Oh, I can get that close to the edge. Oh, sure, I can run into the be friends with that person. Not that big of a deal. You know, teens will be teens. Wild, you know, oats to sow and all. What makes you so sure that making your excuses the way you do and that you live in comparison with others, have you forgotten that you live in the sight of God and that you're not going to get away with it? Look in chapter 22 on how Ahab dies. Ahab is killed in battle. And he's killed in battle when he's trying to hide and get away with it. It says in 1 Kings 22 that an arrow was shot at random while Ahab was dressed up in disguise. Here's Ahab. He knows they're only going after the king. And he goes, ah, oh, I know how I can actually avoid God's curse of judgment on my life. I'm going to dress up like a servant. No one will know. I'm going to look like a servant, act like a servant. I'm just going to be in battle, and I'll just pass. And it just so happens that someone takes an arrow, throws it at random, throws it, shoots it. I'm so glad Brandon Reed isn't here this morning. Okay, Reed, Billy, don't tell him. Okay, but throws, throw an arrow. Oh. No, shoots an arrow at random, and it just so happens to get right between his armor, pierce his chest, and kills him. And what is God doing throughout history? God is at work. Crushing armies, raising up prophets, executing judgment, all for his glory. Faith family, God will not be mocked. For what a man sows, that will he reap. And what is true in the days of Elijah is true today. Do you know that we deserve the judgment that Ahab had? But God sent his son to do what we could not do, which is live a perfect life. Then he died in our place, and he rose again, defeating death on the third day. All so that God would get the glory. The reason we push, preach the foolishness of the cross, it's foolishness because you have nothing you can bring. All you can do is receive it by grace through faith, and God gives you grace and faith to believe it. 
so that he gets all the glory. His glory is paramount, and the pinnacle of his glory is when he shows, number three, God's amazing grace. Turn over in your Bibles to 1 Kings 21, verses 25 through 26. This is a summary of how wicked King Ahab is. Please look at your Bible, 25 through 26 of chapter 21. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Why do we have a summary, a parenthetical reference here, kind of in quotes, to tell us about Ahab's life? Because you would never believe verses 27 through 29 of just how amazing God's grace is. 27, and when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth, and went about dejected. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. By all appearances, Ahab humbles himself, the wicked king repents, and God saves him in amazing grace. What do you think about that? Whatever you think about the genuineness of Ahab's repentance, guess what? We know this for a fact. God gives Ahab more time. Did you ever think that it is God's amazing grace that he gives you more time to prove the genuineness of your repentance? You get to come back to church week in and week out. What time, what grace to prove your repentance? You get to begin again tomorrow, Lord willing, if you wake up, to serve the Lord, to amend your ways. You can't start over and make a brand new beginning, but you can start now and make a brand new end. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It is God's amazing grace that he has not sent Jesus Christ back so that you could still have time to repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ. Well, 1 Kings, let's just look at it. It ends with the reign of Jehoshaphat in verses 41 through 50 of chapter 22. We're looking at just one verse, verse 43. We hear about this King Jehoshaphat. Our story of 1 Kings comes to a close. And in verse 43, we learn that Jehoshaphat walked in the ways of Asa, his father. He didn't turn aside from it. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on high places. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. After wicked king Ahab, I think the whole nation just finally feels a sigh of relief. Finally. There's like a good king. Woo! But even though Jehoshaphat was better than Ahab, he still couldn't do what we need. Jehoshaphat couldn't change the human heart. There were still high places. People still made sacrifices and worshipped other gods. You know what, faith family? We need a king that's so powerful that he can change our hearts from the inside out. Legislation. Is great. We praise the Lord for godly leadership, but it won't ultimately solve America's problems. We need someone who can change our hearts from the inside out. Enter Jesus. The story of kings, especially King Ahab, and I want you to hear every word here, shows us what an amazing thing it will one day be to be under King Jesus. 
Here we are given the answer to how the bad King Ahab is. In closing, do you see all the contrast? 1 Kings 21 shows us an anti-king, King Ahab, who abuses power and takes what is unrightfully his, namely Naboth's inheritance. But it only makes us long for a king who will use his power and even relinquish his power for the good of his people to give them an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1.4. What a king we have in Jesus. Jesus, a man who had trumped up charges made about him, who was mocked. Hail the king of the Jews! And ironically, he actually is the king of the Jews. A man who looked the most powerless, as he couldn't even carry his cross the whole way, actually was the most powerful by resurrecting from the dead. A man who chose not to save his life for himself by coming down from the cross was actually in the very act saving others' lives. The man who did not lay down his life was giving eternal life in the very moment where it looked like he was out of control, crucified with his hands nailed. It was at the very moment that Jesus actually accomplished the eternal plan of redemption. He, he can't do anything of his own will. He, he, he's, he's connected to a cross. He's nailed there. He's stuck. That's, he can't do anything. He's lost control. No. Before the world was even founded, it was God's plan to have him crucified, and he's up there fulfilling it, paying it in full. What a king! So look again to the cross. See that in the cross, God's word is trustworthy. Here we have Jesus who said, this temple... I'm going to destroy, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And he did. The cross says God's word is trustworthy. If Christ can resurrect from the dead, then it means that also God's word is trustworthy that whoever believes in him shall be saved. It also shows us that God's glory is paramount. Where else do you get perfect justice and perfect love poured out? God, his glory, I have to punish sin, but God in his love saying it's because of Christ's death on the cross, I can be gracious to you. The pinnacle of God's love is his grace. Because of the cross, God can forgive someone as awful as Ahab. It's you. It's me. Chief of sinners. And faith family, a small decision can determine your ultimate destination. God only has mercy for those who find refuge under his word, not those who exalt themselves over his word. Do you have the faith to trust the foolishness of the word that Jesus Christ died, was buried, raised, according to the scriptures, for the forgiveness of sins? Let's stand and sing.